0: That's investher, H E R, con.com, promo code 100 best ever to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Mindset's the most important thing because the first few years is going to be pretty challenging, especially if you leave a steady paycheck. So I think investing in your mind and understanding the value of having that grit is going to allow you to have that energy and that motivation to continue through the hard times and then there will be good times. Like the other Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Cole McEvely. Cole is joining us from Sacramento, California. He is an investor advocate at TGA Investment Partners, where he helps investors uncover their own needs and self-serving bias that could be warping their reality. He uncovers what drives investors so they can make simplified decisions based on validated assumptions. Colm's portfolio consists of 24 syndications, a few exits, and he is currently investing in seven properties, passively and 10 actively. Colm, thank you for joining us and how are you today?
1: I'm fantastic. Thanks for the invite, Ash. Hey, man.
2: It's our pleasure to have you back. Colm, if you would, give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now.
1: Background was I had a health problem, I had a heart failure, and that really forced me to focus on what was fulfilling beyond just having a a W-2 and making money and having a steady income. My background is really on serving investors. I have a 100% commission sales background. It wasn't fulfilling. I was making great money. And then I had my midlife crisis in my late 20s because I was born with adult congenital heart problems. I was born with heart problems, right? So it forced me to realize what's important to me and what makes me feel like I have fulfillment a lot earlier than maybe somebody in their mid 40s that they're in an unhappy marriage and they have kids. They're not living a balanced life. So I benefit from experiencing that in my late 20s. And essentially, I can go through the whole thing, but Joe Fairless actually helped me a lot with this podcast. There was a podcast he interviewed in April 2019, Ellie Perman, episode 1683. And the podcast was about having an open mind towards investment and leaving your job and in that best ever podcast, he actually answered one of my questions. I asked him via LinkedIn. So Joe is active on LinkedIn, but the question was, I'm feeling unfulfilled in my W two. I want to move into real estate. What do you recommend? And I wanted to be a hundred percent passive income because I might not be able to survive past my next heart surgery. And so Joe basically gave me these three options and it was a balance between time commitment and risk. And the first option was the lowest risk, and it was to go with a big company. There's lots of security, but it's maybe not going to be as financially rewarding. The second option was to go with maybe a middle-sized company, maybe between 50 and 500 million in assets. I could get equity, but I probably wouldn't have health insurance, and I probably wouldn't have a salary. And that was medium risk. And then the third option was the most risky, and that was to start my own firm. And it probably is going to take the longest time. And I chose the middle option. I actually, through podcasts, which is really important, I found Neil Bawa and I found out that he was only a couple hours away from me. So I started to drive into to his meetups and I found a way to wedge value into his company because I could see that he needed to focus on some higher value business activities and he needed somebody to nurture and apply the human touch to his investors. And that's where I facilitated and helped him out. But uh, essentially with two groups, I raised about $160 million from retail investors About 60 million myself was converted, but I had visibility and I was instrumental in altering that middle of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel process with engaging with investors. And I benefit from having about 6,000 first-time investor calls and seeing how investors make decisions. And that's one of the things that I want to go over today is that a lot of people are making decisions without understanding the biases that are clouding up their decision-making process. And My goal is to actually serve investors and help provide clarity and establish a decision-making process criteria with them.
2: That's an interesting journey. One, I'm glad you're doing very well. You look like a million bucks. It's funny that you mentioned Neil needed the human touch. I love the guy. He's all business and all data. I could see a good fit for the two of you there. So being an investor advocate, what did you learn about investors when you made all of those calls?
1: The key thing is that There's three big biases that are impacting these people's decisions, and it's important to have the criteria that you establish up front before you get into investing. And the three big biases are, you have information biases, where you're making a decision based on the limited information you have. So are you vetting that information? Is it coming from a reliable resource? Is it coming from the broker? So that's the information biases. You have results biases, which a perfect example is you'll talk to an investor and you'll say what was your best investment decision, and they'll give you an example of a project that went well financially. But what they should be doing is talking about process that they went to make that decision. Because once they make that investment decision, they're out of the game; they're just passive. So the results biases is where people are judging the quality of the decision based on the result and not the actual process that they went through to create that decision. And then the last bias is, well, I'm distracted because I'm thinking about this Pete Carroll example. The Super Bowl a few years ago, the Seahawks were playing the Patriots, and Pete Carroll had called a one-yard throw. Do you remember that?
0: I
2: do. Malcolm Butler intercepted it?
1: Okay. So that's a perfect example of a results bias, because people called Pete Carroll dingus for saying, why would you throw a one-yard throw when you have the best running back in the league, Marshawn Lynch? But if you look at it statistically... Pete Carroll made the right decision because that entire season, there was zero one yard interceptions and there was a ton of fumbles on one yard runs. So Pete made the right decision, but the result came out not in his favor and he got a lot of flack for it. If somebody was looking at it on how he actually made the decision, they probably would have thought that he did the right thing. And then the last biases is confirmation biases where people tend to make their investment decisions, confirming information that they already have and beliefs that they already have. So I have an example where I was talking to an investor and he wanted to invest in Austin so bad, but everything about the deal didn't align with all the previous conversations. He mentioned that he wanted X, Y, Z and his types of investments. And this one just happened to be in Austin and it had nothing to do with the rest of what he wanted, but he basically was interpreting that this new type of deal in Austin was so good that the rest of his information didn't matter. And he ended up actually calling me months later. The deal was going well, but he ended up calling me months later saying that his purse was on lock. And what that means is his partner, his wife, wouldn't let him invest again because he basically invested without really sticking to the plan. So just an example of a confirmation bias where he's confirming his own beliefs about a particular city, even though it was against everything else that he already believed in.
2: When you're on the call with an investor, now from my perspective, you find out what their desire is, find out what their goals are and see if they're a good fit for your product. And you're then presenting the deal that you currently have. What's wrong with doing that?
1: Well, it's nothing. First off, I don't like to call investors just to pitch them on a deal. I try to hit them in the face with value a bunch of times and then you hit the deal, right? But the best way to do that is to really have a personal relationship with them and create a myriad of tags with an active campaign or whatever that CRM is that's specific and unique to that investor. And then anytime maybe a particular law or event or investment or something that might benefit that individual comes up across your desk, reach out to them, have a phone call. There's so many automations. I have a thousand emails from different syndicators and a lot of them are my personal friends, truthfully. But it's like, this is clearly not curtailed towards me. So, responding to your question is there's nothing wrong with what you're saying. But before I have that call, and there's two types of calls there's an introductory call, which is like that discovery call, and then there's a due diligence call, which is specific around a deal. But before I have that due diligence call, because I already established a relationship, I'm calling them multiple times and trying to provide value and trying to let them know about something related to their particular industry, something related to their particular interests that is happening local to their area. And the best way to do that, because you can't remember all of your investor calls, is to have really thorough notes and a ton of tags so you can filter through these investors quickly. And by doing that, you can add a lot more value to people and reduce that outreach time that it takes because you can just pull up a quick report, you know exactly who it applies to, and you can actually have a genuine conversation. But I can't remember this conversation from 2018 about Little League or something. But there might be a tag related to that.
2: There's a point where it gets obvious that you're reading notes.
1: Oh, maybe for others. I don't think I've had that problem. How do you... Because it's it's a real genuine thing, right? Got it. Yes. Yeah.
2: And that's the worst when there's a minor detail that somebody remembers and you know there's no possible way they remember that. And you could tell they're reading notes or... They mishap and say, hey, last time we talked, you're renovating this. And it's like, wait a minute. That was like four conversations ago. And that project was five years ago. And you could tell their notes are not updated, right? And that's a huge turnoff. So the tip there is be genuine. Walk us through an example of a conversion from a conversation to somebody that became an
1: investor. Oh, man, there's so many. And obviously, you know that sometimes people invest blindly. They just trust your process so much. But if I'm talking to an investor, the first thing I want to help them through the four stages of a decision, and the first stage is vetting that sponsor. I want them to understand how to vet a sponsor. And there's a couple of different processes on that. The second thing is vetting the MSA and the local neighborhood. I want them to understand that because if I can coach them on those two things, then they are feeling more comfortable about the metro, the city. They're already sold on that. And you do that months and months in advance, pitching them pitching them on a deal. And then the deal comes up. So now we're in call two or three. Sometimes it happens in one call. But when we're in call two or three, then you want to make sure that they understand the investment. What are the tax benefits, the NOI? What's the lending info? What's the benefits of that? And you try to address the pain up front. And then last but not least is the actual deal numbers. So when I work with my investors and help create a decision-making process for them, we pen down those four areas, sponsor, MSA, local, the actual investment, and then the deal numbers. Those are the four areas that investors need to understand. And that's the chronological order that I would recommend that they go into as well.
2: Walk us through a difficult conversion.
1: Well, I don't think there's ever been difficult conversions because it's pretty clear that they're not a good fit. So if you're really struggling to convert that investor, maybe your database isn't as big, but there is difficult conversions. You can't control how investors receive other information and you can't control the other information that investors are receiving. So one of the ways to mitigate that is by asking a lot of questions and finding out what are their experiences? Who else are they talking to? What are these areas that they're looking into? It's kind of like a bowling ball. If you're talking to an investor, you wanna have a strike, right? with a bowling ball and the questions that you ask an investor are like the bumper ballers on the bowling lane. So they're talking and the ball is going down the lane and you can see it's going away from something that might not be particular to really learning more about what the compelling event for them is. And that question brings them back in. So I think the most difficult investor calls are when you are having to understand that these people are getting misinformation from other sources. So, I think the most difficult thing is running out of time on that call. And Because you know, the goal of the, the investor call is to get a yes, no, or maybe. And the maybe is a budget for later. You want to get them to a decision and you're not selling anything. You're helping people buy. But sometimes they have bad information and that's where it's the most difficult.
2: How often do you reach out to
1: your database? My database? I just left Viking Capital, which is a great company. The CEO of Vikram has a great mindset, which is why I joined their company. So, my database I'm building up, right? But I helped build two other people's databases. And at that time, there was a, a frequency where I tried to have as many scheduled investor calls as possible. And then when I didn't have a scheduled investor call, I was going back to that list that I talked to you about where how can I provide value to somebody without actually selling them? Because I want to harvest trust. I still have people calling me years later on money I've raised three, four years ago because they trust me and they understand that I'm looking out for their best interest. So I might try to have 10 investor scheduled calls a day. And then in between that time, depending on my energy level, because it needs to be sustainable, I might fill it in. And one of the tools that we would use is phone burner. Air calls, another one where there's an auto dialer but these lists that you're auto dialing are curtailed to the specific thing that you're trying to provide value on. And if I'm doing an auto dialer thing, I'm not talking to them about a particular investment opportunity.
2: What type of people are on this list? Is this a list that you purchase?
1: Oh man, I think purchase lists are a really bad idea because a lot of times it's really dated information. And every year about 10% of those emails are bad. I don't think I've worked for a company that's purchased a list since 2019. And it was simply because of that. And and there's Never Bounce and, and At Data, which are really good email scrubbing softwares, but still, I don't recommend buying lists. The best lists were people data labs, but even with that, I'm focusing on building a community right now. And the value of a community is you can create super fans. And with super fans, there's a lot more trust and there's repeat investments, but there's a real intimate relationship that I can have with my investors. And I can get very personal. I think there's a lot of syndicators out there that are doing a disservice to investors. And a perfect example was I was at PIMD in September last year and this guy raised $30 million from January to September. I'm not gonna say his name. In that same conversation, he asked me what the DSCR was. And I'm like, Oh my God, dude, the deals could be fine, but he is potentially putting his friends and families and investors money in deals that he doesn't understand how to evaluate the risk. And that was one of the springboards that made me feel more confident about what I'm actually doing in the beginning of me moving away from Viking and, and trying to do my own thing because um, ultimately I want to create a nonprofit that donates to pay for therapy for people that have heart surgery like myself. So if my goal is to have 50% of my GP to pay for the therapy of people that have surgeries because I don't think people realize the downstream PTSD that you have from having like terminal illnesses, not terminal, but you can die if you don't have the surgery, but it's a real personal thing. And it's why I really choose to serve the medical providers. A lot of people do that because a surgeon is worth two or three times the average investor. For me, that's not the case. For me, it's somebody that actually gave me an extension on my life. Every man has two lives and their second life begins the moment they realize they only have one life left.
0: We'll get back to the show. a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment Never lost an LP's investment and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a 3 to 5 year hold period. If you are an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot com. Call, cool.
2: Let's get down in the weeds a little bit. So our yeah. best ever listeners, if they are starting to compile a list, they're starting to build their network. What's practical advice for them to do that? They're starting from zero.
1: So the value of a community is super important. It could be virtual. It could be local. I actually co-host three meetups. One's in Sacramento, one's in Walnut Creek, and one is in Danville, so East Bay or Northern California, reach out to me. I can help get you on that list. The value of the community is a springboard. It's kind of like having a cabinet for your personal decisions of your life. And when I first left my W-2, which was a real challenge, I was very scared. I did a couple things. I took out a cash out refi from Matt, the mortgage guy. I took out about 200K out of one of my rentals, put half of it into a debt fund to get that income. And then the other half, I just kept liquid. But then I got more involved in my local meetup. And I created relationships with people in that local meetup that not only created and shared ideas, but I've done deals with. And I've literally become a millionaire because of the dozens of deals that I've done with people in my local meetup. I highly stress that you get involved with a community. There's great value to that. That's the first thing to building your database. It's that sounding board for different ideas.
2: What are other ways to build that community besides local meetups?
1: Amy Silvest does a LinkedIn course, but I haven't done her course, but I think statistically LinkedIn has the highest income audience. It's kind of like quality versus quantity. Facebook has a, a way bigger quantity. LinkedIn has a way bigger quality. So I'd work on creating a list of 250 people. This is actually what Ryan McKenna told me to do. He said, create a list of 250 people and reach out to them and tell them genuinely the positive experience that you're having with these passive investing and ask them if they would be okay with you sharing your story and your lessons with them. And you reach out to those people and and you genuinely say it's because I'm having a great time and you you share that with them. 90% of them are going to say, yeah, share me the information. And right there you have 225 people that just said yes. So right off the bat, you have over 200 people on your list. They might not be accredited, but it's like the first 50 times you do a podcast, the first 50 times you do a newsletter, it's going to suck. You just got to do it. Version one's better than version none.
2: Once you have the start of a list, what's your next step?
1: For me, it's about harvesting and continuing to add value. One of the things that is funny to me is I know a lot of people and they go, hey, do you want to do a deal with us? And it's like, yeah, I want to do a deal, but I'm not going to do it without looking at your underwriting. There's a vetting process that I go through. so. I want to potentially share opportunities with my investors that are going to be home on. Everybody that's invested with me or worked with me in the past, I make them money. I provide winners. I partner with winners. I am a winner. And I want to be really, really protective of my investors' money like it's my grandmother's money. So the next steps after getting that database is protecting that database. They say it's easier to milk your cows than your neighbor's cows. Really harvesting those relationships and creating these deals that are impeccable and not jumping into anything. You need deal velocity, but at the same time, you need to recognize that you have one bad deal, they're never investing with you again.
2: I'm assuming you are a capital raiser for other people's deals. Do you also do your own?
1: I have my own personal rentals, but 100%, I understand the difficulty and the amount of work that it takes for proper asset management and proper property management. I would be an absolute fool to simplify the fact that I could be my own GP and actually a sponsor. I'm going to partner with people that have a great track record. There's a couple groups out there that I'm looking to partner with that I've been vetting their deals. They've had 29 exits. It's a great company to work with. I'm trying to partner with people that have a track record. And then also they're comfortable with transparency with their investors and that they have a high level of integrity because... This is a long game. Real estate is a get rich slow. And the only way to actually get rich is to have a high standards and be really ethical. And I think the people that are, for lack of a better word, shisty, that's going to come into light in the next few years.
2: So Colm, you are essentially a capital raiser who finds accredited investors and helps them place their money into investments. Is that right? Yeah. And how do you get paid for doing that?
1: Well, it depends on the deal. Each deal can be structured differently. Usually there's a commitment on the amount of funds that I can provide, and there's a pre-agreed upon amount of equity that come with that. One of the companies I worked with, I just had a share of the general partner's equity. So it really depends. It's deal specific.
2: And on that deal, so when a syndicator is looking to raise $10 million, do you come in and say, I'll commit to $2.5
1: what i recommend money raiser capital raisers do is look at their list and understand where we're at in the economy right now and know that in a good economy maybe you can get a million bucks out of each thousand person in your database in a bad economy maybe you can get a million bucks out of two thousand people in your database and then figure out a number that you think you could actually raise and then i don't like the stress of committing to a number that you have the challenge of raising. So I might think I can raise $10 million, but I'll only commit $5 million. And then I feel a little bit less stressed on it. For me, it's just a comfort thing. It's a level of risk. I don't want to let down the rest of the partners.
2: That's a good point. Do you get to charge your investors fees as well?
1: Me personally, no. These fees come out of the deal. So I'm not charging the investors fees at all.
2: All right. So if the deal returns, let's say an annualized return, Total IRR upon sale of let's say 15%. Are you taking anything off the top of that?
1: Well, again, it depends on the structure of the deal, the waterfall. There's an operating agreement and a PPM. And the PPM is the ingredients, and then the operating agreement is the recipe. So it's how we're going to execute that. And within those documents, it will stipulate the compensation to the sponsors and and the capital raisers. It will actually break all that out. So it's pretty clear on the deal, and each deal has a different level of risk. For example, if a deal is harder to raise money, on, maybe the capital raisers or the GP might take a little bit more, or if it's harder to execute. I've raised money for 10 or 11 new development syndications, and the GP was compensated a little bit more because we had to work with the city, to get zoning, get the permitting done. So there's a higher level of compensation to, to deal with the fact that there was a lot more work for the GP. So there's no set standard amount per deal.
2: Now, when you say we had to work with the city. Does that include you personally or just the syndicator?
1: I promise you there's people a lot smarter than me working with the city.
2: Got it. Okay. So once you raise the capital, your job from there is communicate with the investors going forward.
1: On an ongoing basis, yeah. I'm personally trying to improve and increase investor trust. And the best way to do that is is usually over communication. I'm constantly reaching out to the investors and it's to the point where they know that if they pick up the phone and they see my number, there's going to be something of value that I'm going to provide them. It could be a project update. It could be something very personal to them and specific for them. I'm not just bombarding people for a transactional thing. I have real relationships with my investors. I've had people cry on the phone. I've had people get marriage proposals. And so that's a joke. But but seriously, I'm constantly looking for ways to touch my investor and, and add value. And, and I think all syndicators should.
2: How often do the syndicators communicate with you? And in turn, how often do you communicate with your investors?
1: It depends. There's different things like the financials can be reviewed monthly. There could be an in-depth financial review quarterly, but I'm an open book. I encourage my investors to call me first always. And if I haven't heard from them, you have to understand if you're trying to create and harvest this relationship your ability to impact their decision decreases 10% every month that you're not having a contact. So you should be talking to them at least every month.
2: Do you also interact with other investors for that GP or strictly your own?
1: It depends on the deal. I have an agreement with one where I'm actually helping out his investors. And then it really depends it's deal specific. But there's one relationship where I'm actually working both lists, both my list. And the GP's list, because there's that level of trust that we have.
2: And then, in order to be on the GP, you've got to do something more than bring capital to the table. What is that typically?
1: I have an exposure and background to a lot of growth hacking. I've got this from one of my mentors. So, the strategies that I've learned since leaving Growth Capital is going to different conventions, going to different conferences. That's one of the ways that I can provide value to the GP. It's not just harvesting investors and creating that human touch and bringing in the money. It's about how do we grow that list? How do we increase the top of the funnel, the middle of the funnel? And then how do we create these super fans down at the bottom?
2: How do you increase the top and the middle of the funnel?
1: Well, there's different ways. So there was a recent conference that I went to in the middle of the funnel, the conversion conference. That was all about implementing AI into the middle of the funnel and getting better analytics on these investors. So conversion conference, obviously conversion. So there's these different metrics that we measure and you can actually tell who's more likely to move forward and who's more likely to take action. So that's in the middle of the funnel. The top of the funnel is all about growth hacking. And a lot of that, one of my best friends, Eric blue, who anybody interested in growth hacking, you can reach out to me. I can connect you to Eric. He might not help you, but he's a really good guy. But growth hacking is about taking what you have and with the minimal amount of resources growing it as much as possible.
2: What is your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: Mindset's the most important thing because the first few years is gonna be pretty challenging, especially if you leave a steady paycheck. So I think investing in your mind and understanding the value of having that grit is gonna allow you to have that energy and that motivation to continue through the hard times and then there will be good times at the other end.
2: All right, Coleman, you ready for the best ever lightning round?
1: Yeah, let's do it. All right,
2: Colm, what's the best ever book you recently read?
1: Best ever book that I recently read? Man, I read so many. The last one I read was about yoga, but I actually think it's probably The Will to Change by Bell Hooks, but that's more on my personal discovery and being able to communicate and being honest with yourself and others. But that's not related to real estate. I think the best real estate book that I read recently was a short one by Rob Beardsley, and then the other one was obviously The Brian Burke. The good old one in Hands Off Investor Handbook.
2: And Colm, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: Well, my goal is to create a GP that, create an investment group that will donate $10 million. So I think my best ever way that I'm working on giving back is to pay for therapy for people that have similar heart conditions as myself. Because I think that's how I can build and give back to the community, to these doctors. These doctors basically saved my life. And the best way to say thank you is to help their patients.
2: Colm, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: If they go to TGAIP.com, you can schedule a call. We can talk about decision-making processes. We can talk about the power of the community. We can talk about the different meetups in Northern California. TGAIP.com.
2: Colm, thank you for your time today, sharing some mindset of investors, common mistakes made. And I'm glad you're doing well, man. Thanks for your time.